The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network show and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. And uh, as I like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And you can uh, sign up for both those letters by going to miningstocks.com. That's miningstocks.com. You do have to put your name on a waiting list for Chen, and he will be accepting new subscribers at the beginning of the next calendar quarter. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show and uh, would invite you to keep your questions and comments coming to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. And I would like to invite you to follow me on Twitter as well. My handle there is jtaylormedia, jtaylormedia. I want to thank uh, each of you uh, again for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. Also, I want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors are Caden Resources, Ganey Capital Corporation, and Cornerstone Capital. Now let's get into today's show because we have an awful lot of material to cover and much too little time to do it. Naomi Ariskas, Brent Cook, Gene Epstein, and David Jensen are all returning today. I have titled today's show, Will Global Warming Collapse Western Civilization? Well, other than religion and politics, I don't know of another topic that is more divisive than the issue of global warming. And personally, I feel a lot of discomfort in discussing it because I believe many, if not most, of my closest friends have made their minds up and they are even angry about me even keeping an open mind about this very important topic. In short, I feel torn by this issue because I'm not so sure that my friends uh, on the right side of the political spectrum are being honest about this issue. No, I don't think they mean to be dishonest about it. I think there's just a preponderance of propaganda that is sent our way each and every day uh, that is geared to biasing our thoughts, not only on this issue, but God knows on uh, geopolitics and every other manner of 
item that's talked about. Uh, Keynesian economics is another example. So I think, though, that it's very important that we do keep an open mind about these issues. Uh, and so I, I really hope that you will uh, stick around to listen to uh, what Professor, uh, Harvard professor Naomi Ariskas uh, has to say, as well as highly regarded geologist Brent Cook, who will be joining me in that conversation. Well, the question is, is warming fact or fiction? If it is fact, is it caused by natural, geological, or solar-related events or by human beings? As I said, uh, both geologists uh, Brent Cook and Naomi will be with me to talk about this, but Naomi will be uh, will ask her a bit about her latest book, The Collapse of Western Civilization. That very short book pictures an Earth that is no longer habitable by the year 2393. Well, the economic consequences, whether positive or negative, will certainly uh, be enormous if Naomi is right. Frankly, as important as I think that issue of global warming is, I believe of more immediate concern to Western civilization should be its evil monetary system that enriches and enables a ruling elite to not only buy the regulatory favors of big oil companies uh, and other major corporate interests, uh, those are those are uh, issues that Naomi decries for sure. But those uh, that monetary system also enables the funding of war and socialism, which are in the process, I believe, of destroying our planet and doing uh, so much. I fear so much harm. Uh, much before the catastrophic year of 2393 that Naomi worries about in her book. Um, also, I should mention that this is this being the first Tuesday of every month, uh, the first Tuesday of September, uh, it's time to talk to Gene Epstein. He'll be joining me uh, in a few minutes to talk about uh, the upcoming show, the New York City Junto show at 44 uh, West, uh, that is uh, 40 at, uh, well, it's 44 West, 44th Street, or 20 West 44th Street, excuse me, uh, between 5th and 6th Avenues. That show gets underway in earnest at 8 o'clock. You can assemble a little earlier than that. I also hope to talk to Gene uh, briefly about his article this week in Barron's. He wrote the cover story this week in Barron's about the horrific labor markets in the United States. And Daniel McAdams, well, he's usually with me in the second hour of the show. He will not be joining me today, but I will be picking up on some of the very interesting topics and articles on the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity, most significant of which is an article written by Dmitry Orlov uh, titled The Ten Ways You Know for Sure If Putin Is In Fact Invading the Ukraine. Of course, um, uh, that of course is what we are being told by our mainstream media on a regular basis that uh, Putin and the Russians are in there raising hell in the Ukraine. Well, Orlov gives some compelling reasons to believe that NATO and the Ukraine government are giving us a line of falsehoods to build up an anti Putin war mania. Also in the second hour, I am going to highlight some brilliant observations by Richard Mayberry. I will be passing along uh, some, uh, some of Richard's insights into geopolitics and how you can make money from what is really happening as opposed to what you are supposed to believe is happening. And I will pass along also some of Richard's views on how America has gotten itself into the horrible mess we are now finding ourselves in uh, geopolitically and here at home as well. I noticed that the gold markets and silver markets are taking quite a hit today, but are the real gold and silver markets getting hit hard? Well, I ask that question because uh, David Jensen will be with me in the second hour there. Uh, there is a huge difference, as he will explain, between the fraudulent paper markets of the LBMA uh, and the actual physical markets for the precious uh, metals markets in Asia. 
Well, we do have to uh, take our first commercial break now, but don't go away because coming up next will be Gene Epstein to talk about the labor markets and the upcoming New York City Junto. I'll be right back with Gene Epstein. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have Gene Epstein with me again. Uh, he is generally with me the first Tuesday of every month to discuss the uh, the Junto meetings that come up on the first Thursday of every month. They're held at the General Society Library, 20 West 44th Street uh, in New York City between 5th and 6th Avenues. Gene is also uh, a prolific writer for Barron's. Uh, he writes uh, a weekly column, and this week he actually wrote the cover story for Barron's titled Works for Squares, and we want to ask Gene about that as well. Uh, thanks for joining me again, Gene. A pleasure as always. Mm-hmm. Really good to have you. I, I uh, would like you to tell us a little bit our guest, this uh, New York City Junto. Uh, his name is George Megan. What can you tell us about Mr. Megan? George Megan uh, is uh, some kind of phenomenon uh, because uh, he has written a book about having walked around the world once or twice, maybe three times, having covered something like 19,000 miles of walking. And so he's had experiences that you and I in our, uh, in our comfortable offices have not had, and he's going to share them with us. And uh, we look forward to that. Also, by the way, uh, speaking of my cover story, I will, starting at uh, 7.30 uh, before uh, George Meekin goes on, I'll devote some time to uh, presenting uh, portions of my cover story for discussion with the audience. People who read it uh, especially will get the opportunity to ask me about it and uh, air their views. So uh, it will be uh, sort of uh, two things in the Junto sandwich uh, this coming Thursday evening. hope people can come. 
That's really good. So we should tell our listeners, show up at uh, no later than 7.30 to catch Gene's uh, commentary on the article that we want to get him to just briefly uh, discuss with us now. Uh, again, that article is titled Works for Squares, and it's a picture in Barron's of a guy in a hammock just taking it easy, uh, suggesting that maybe it's not really very cool to work these days. It's much cooler to just uh, collect from the government, I suppose. Well, that's one thing we've been trained to do, Gene, very well uh, through our educational system, our, uh, I think, We've been taught to be socialist in America, but let's get on to your article. Uh, the un- the, it's stated the caption is uh, under the cover story. It says the unemployment rate may be falling, but with more people than ever out of the workforce, the news is bad and getting worse. Well, Gene, you know, we keep hearing the headlines that the unemployment rate is going down. Mm-hmm. What's, what's wrong with that? Well, uh I, I do believe when I say the unemployment rate is going down, uh, that was uh, just one broad brush stroke, uh, brush stroke about the fact that the labor market, uh, well, I don't give it an A. I mean, the demand and market for labor right now, I don't give it an A plus, uh, but I would give it a B. It has uh, substantially rebounded, and uh, we know that from various indicators, not just uh, the unemployment rate. We know, for example, that new unemployment insurance claims are down to lows comparable to 07 and 06. In other words, comparable Mm -hmm. to where uh, the economy was uh, uh, during the peak before the Great Recession. Um, We know as well that uh, the the number of available jobs at uh, 4.6 million um, is uh, at a high not seen since the second quarter of 2007. And so uh, we know as well that uh, measures of mass layoffs are way down. And so the market market for labor has made a substantial comeback. And you would not expect... Uh, the labor force participation rate of prime age men to continue to decline during mm-hmm. this period, but actually, and that, but that has what has happened is what has happened. I'm, I focus especially on that age group and that uh, gender, men age 25 to 54, um, who, uh, who whose participation in the labor force is about 88 percent now. That means that one out of every eight um, prime age men, male, is uh, neither uh, looking for work or has a job. And by the way, with respect to looking for work, um, that is, with respect to being unemployed, uh, I think it's important to recognize that uh, the standards set by the BLS are extremely lenient. You can be counted as unemployed, um, as actively looking for work, if over the past month you made one attempt uh, to call a relative about a job, one attempt to answer an ad and send out an application. Now, many of us would doubt that that's truly an active job search, mm-hmm. but the BLS accepts that and, and counts you as unemployed if you did that. And so I do want to point out for those who believe that, that the shadow unemployment rates that are touted by many, um, that they, they point out that uh, this must mean that many, many more people are unemployed than the unemployment rate actually captures. But I don't think that's true. I believe that the labor force, uh, which includes uh, the employed and the unemployed, pretty much covers anybody who wants to work. And when you have a situation in which 
the labor force participation rate of prime age men has fallen over the past year despite the substantial rebound in job availability and in indications about the demand for labor, then you have something very disconcerting going on. As you begin to unravel the underlying causes, then you find that to some degree, to great degree, there's no real mystery as to what's going on. We have had a revolution in disability filings. Um, it's not as though you know lovers of the free market have pointed this out. Plenty of responsible academics point out that in the case of prime age men, for example, um, over 3%, one out of every 33 prime age male is on disability, is uh, supposedly disabled and unable to work. That's over 3%. The, the, the share back in 1970 used to be 1%. Mm. One out of 100 prime age males was disabled. Now, mm. uh, now, what's happened since 1970? What has happened since 1970 is that you would have expected that the share of, of any population disabled from work would have declined. The reason why it should have declined is, first of all, that work is generally gotten safer. Second, that whatever work that remains that is dangerous has also gotten much safer. The health of the population has increased. And so the idea that you could have in terms of share, population share, more than a tripling in the number of prime age men who are uh, on disability, uh, that defies belief. But mm -hmm. then it doesn't defy belief if you recognize that, that there's an enormous for-profit industry invested in this system. That mm -hmm. uh, that there is a uh, that that law firms collectively uh, get over a billion dollars a year from the Social Security Administration that uh, that pays disability to file claims on behalf of people. That if you go on the uh, website, you can easily fill out a form and you can file a claim for disability. That the uh, the number of people in the old days, people who were disabled, generally had cancer or they had a heart condition. Mm -hmm. Today, typically people are filing because they suffer back pain or because they suffer mental instability. Um, two things, mental instability and back pain that are much more difficult to refute if indeed the burden of proof is on uh, the government. And so that's one of the key reasons why um, uh, the labor force participation rate of prime age men has declined. Well, and, that's, uh, uh, that's excellent, Gene. I think that's a probably, uh, given the time that we're running yeah, out of yeah. time here, that's mm. probably where we'll have to leave it. I can okay. think of a half a dozen questions I want to ask you when I meet up with you uh, at uh, New York we're City Junto. We'll talk about Obamacare. This. We'll talk about Obamacare we'll, when we meet up. Cause that's and that will come into the, into the yeah. equation as well, I'm sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. Well, I, I can't. Uh, I think this is going to be a very interesting discussion with both you uh, and George Megan. So I look forward to seeing you there, Gene. And very good. Uh, I thank you again for coming on and and, uh, uh, and enlightening us on this issue. Uh, and I hope all of those who are able to will join us at the New York City Junto uh, to hear much more about this topic as well as uh, what Mr. Megan has to say. So thank right, you very much, much, Gene, for being with us once again. Thanks, well, folks, uh, don't go away. Uh, coming up next, I'm going to be talking to Harvard professor. 
Naomi Ariskus, uh, and highly regarded geologist Brent Cook on the subject of global warming. Now, this is a very hot topic, no pun intended, but it is one that I think is extremely important. So don't go away. Listen to what Naomi and Brent have to say. And I am suggesting that if you want to call in or send in your questions, please do so on this very controversial topic to questions, the number four, Taylor, at gmail.com. Questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Well, don't go away. We'll be right back with Naomi Ariskus and Brent Cook. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. Cornerstone Capital Resources is a prospect generator focused on joint venturing its highly prospective gold, silver, and copper projects in Ecuador and Chile. At its Cascabel Joint Venture in Ecuador, funded by partner Sol Gold PLC, hole five of an ongoing drilling program intersected over 1,300 meters, grading over six-tenths of a percent copper and over half a gram per ton gold. Cornerstone retains a 15% interest financed through to completion of a bankable feasibility study. Symbol CGP on the TS. SXV and CTNXF on the OTC. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, uh, and I'm happy to have with me once again Naomi Ariskus and Brent Cook. Uh, welcome, Naomi, and welcome, Brent, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you. Yeah, good to be here. Good to uh, have you both with us uh, once again. Uh, Brent, uh, for those of you who, well, most of you know Brent pretty well because he's on this show probably more often than Naomi is. Um, Given his activity as a highly respected geologist, uh, exploration geologist, which is, of course, a topic that we talk about frequently on this show, Uh, not as directly related to what we talk about on this show, but certainly and I think arguably far more important over the longer term is the work of uh, Naomi. Uh, on the subject of global warming. Naomi has, as I mentioned, has been with us a couple of times in the past. Uh, she's spoken to us uh, a, a, about a previous a book that she uh, was a co-author of. She is currently a professor of the history of science and affiliated professor of earth and planetary sciences at Harvard University. She started her career as a geologist, uh, received her BS with high honors from the Royal School of Mines, Imperial College London. She then worked for three years as an exploration geologist in uh, the Australian outback, so she has that 
uh, certainly has that in common with Brent as well. Uh, in 1990, she received an interdisciplinary PhD in geological research and history of science from Stanford University. Her 2014 essay, The Scientific uh, Consensus on, Clim- on Climate Change, cited by Al Gore in An Inconven- Inconvenient Truth, led to op-ed pieces in the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, and the San Francisco Chronicle, and to congressional testimony in the United States Senate Committee on Environmental on, envir- on the Environment and Public Works. She uh, co-authored with Eric Conway, um, The Merchants of Doubt, that's the, how, the Merchants of Doubt, How a Handful of Scientists Obscured the Truth. That's the book we talked to Naomi about in the past. And uh, just recently, and what we want to talk to her a little bit about today, is her most recent effort, also a collective effort with Eric Conway, a book called The Collapse of Western Civilization, uh, A View from the Future. Uh, I would really encourage my listeners to pick up a copy of this book. It's a very small, short, quick, easy read, uh, and uh, you know it's very inexpensive, just a few bucks. You can buy it at, uh, on the, online from Barnes & Noble uh, or Amazon. So I really wanted to have Brent with me today, uh, along with Naomi, uh, for a couple of reasons. First, Brent, like Naomi, is a geoscientist, so he brings that background into this discussion far better than I can. And secondly, uh, Brent actually... Uh, first introduced me to Naomi um, a couple of years, a year or so ago anyway. Uh, So we want to get into this whole discussion of global warming today uh, and try to separate fact from fiction. It seems to be, other than politics and religion, I can't think of many topics that are more heated than this. Uh, Certainly uh, people politically on the right want to disbelieve it and people... uh, Typically on the left, I would say that's an oversimplification, but people on the left tend to believe it. Well, how could that be true? I mean, it is a scientific issue, and that's what we want to try to uh, pursue as much as possible to, in the brief time that we have today, to try to to separate fact from fiction on this very important issue. It is a very important issue, I think, because on the one hand, uh, if human beings are not responsible for global warming, and we have government imposing huge amounts of taxes, uh, then that would be a wasted resource. But on the other hand, if humans are causing it, and if there's something that can be done to slow down the process of global warming, uh, then we certainly ought to be looking at it for the sake of future generations. So uh, I think we let's get right into this whole discussion now. And I would imagine there's going to be people out there who hear this and their dander is going to be raised, their the hair on the back of their uh, necks are going to stand straight up. Well, you can go ahead and send questions or comments to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com, and I'll be sure to reach, read each and every one of them and, and perhaps talk about some of them on the air as well in future shows. So, Naomi, uh, before we get started in our discussion, I'm wondering if you could give our listeners just a brief overview uh, of the collapse of Western civilization, your latest effort uh, w- along with Eric Conway. Tell us uh, what the book is about. Sure. Well, as you said a minute ago, this is an issue in which facts and fiction get pretty confused. And I had spent about nearly 10 years talking in my classes and public lectures about the facts of climate change. And by that, I mean the facts as scientists believe they understand them. And yet, as you pointed out, there are a lot of people who don't believe those facts, who get upset about those facts, who think they aren't facts, who think scientists are wrong. And so I had this slightly crazy idea that if I couldn't reach people with facts, 
maybe I could reach them with fiction. <laughs> but, um, but with fiction that was based on facts. So um, many of your readers probably read science fiction, and a lot of people are really interested. Many people who believe in science and technology, who believe in progress through technology, love science fiction. So Eric Conway and I had the idea to make a small work of science fiction. And so this is a book that takes place 300 years in the future, in which a historian is looking back on the present. That is to say, a historian is looking back at us and asking the question, how is it possible that we knew so much about climate change and how the climate system was changing, and yet we did so little to stop it? So that's the question that she, the future historian's a woman, that's the question she poses. And the book is a very short book, as you said. It's an easy read. It's intended to be an easy read. It's only about 50 pages long. It's a sort of novella, really. Um, it's, a, it's her attempt to try to explain what happened and why it was that so many people resisted accepting the scientific facts around climate change. Uh, Naomi, before we talk further about about this topic, uh, tell us a little bit about Eric Conway, your partner on both of uh, the books that you've written so far. Well, Eric, like me, is a historian. He's a historian of technology. He's written several books on the history of space exploration, space technology, and also aviation technology. He works for NASA. Um, he works at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So um, he and I came together to write Merchants of Doubt because of work he had done on the history of ozone depletion in the ozone hole. And both of us have always been both interested in the interface between science and technology. And in a way, the paradox that many people love technology and accept technology and yet are suspicious of science, even though all of our most important technologies are rooted in science. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a paradox that we accept technology but reject science. And so that's one of the many things that Eric and I talk about when we write and think about these problems. Mm -hmm. Naomi, you mentioned uh, that people don't even agree on the facts. Uh, here's one that was brought to my attention by an engineer in Vancouver. Uh, he tells me, and I have no idea whether he's telling the truth. He, I think he thinks he's telling the truth. But he says there's no evidence that there's been a, a rise in the atmospheric temperature over the last 15 years. Help me understand what's the truth on that one. Yeah, well, that's a really interesting example, and I'm sure you're right. I'm sure he thinks what he's saying is true, and there's many places on the Internet where you can find people making that claim, but it's false. It's not true. It's actually a lie, and it's, based, it's a lie that's based on something that we've seen repeatedly over the history of the last 15 years or 20 years on this issue, which is cherry-picking the data. There are many people who don't want to believe that climate change is true, and we can talk later about why that is. Um, and that's okay. I understand that climate change is a bad news story. I wish it weren't true either. But what Eric and I have always argued, we argued in our previous book, we argue it again here, is that just because you don't want something to be true doesn't mean you can make it go away by pretending it isn't true. And so one of the big lies that's been told in recent years is that there's been no warming over the last 15 years. That's based on cherry-picking the data and starting the analysis in 1998, which is an anomalously hot year. So if you compare the present to 1998, it looks as if there's been no warming. But if you did the opposite, if you took an anomalously cold year and said, oh, my God, there's been a, an increase in the warming. Look how incredible, you know, incredibly fast the warming is happening. We would all know that that was bogus. We would all say that's cherry picking the data. Mm -hmm. If environmentalists or scientists did that, we would reject it immediately. And yet when climate change skeptics, deniers, whatever you want to call them, do that in the reverse, people say, oh, my God, look, there's no warming. 
It's just not true. When you look at all the data and you don't cherry pick the data, you see that the warming trend has continued. The 2000s were hotter than the 90s, the 90s were hotter than the 80s, the 80s were hotter than the 70s, etc. There's a consistent warming trend since the 1960s, and there's been no pause, no hiatus, and no stopping of that warming trend. Okay, so the cause of it, uh, do you relate that to rising levels of CO2? Well, again, it's not me. It's not what I relate it to. It's what the scientific community does. So we have more than 10,000 people who are members of the American Geophysical Union, even more scientists around the globe, if we include Europeans and Australians and other people who study the question. Um, Much of the data on this issue comes from NASA, which is where Eric works, so he understands the NASA data very, very well. We have overwhelming scientific data that shows us that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has increased. We've been measuring it systematically since the 1950s, so as long as I've been alive and as long as probably a lot of your viewers have been alive. um, We know that carbon dioxide has increased nearly 40% since the Industrial Revolution. It's been measured. It's not just a theory. We actually have direct measurements of that. And we know that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas, and we've known that since the 19th century. That was proved by John Tyndall in Ireland in the 1850s. So if you increase the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, you expect the temperature to warm. And indeed, all of the available instrumental data says that the temperature has warmed. And that's data both from uh, weather stations on Earth. It's uh, data from NASA satellites. It's data from um, something called microwave sounding units that are put into the troposphere. It's data from the oceans. We have many different sources of temperature data, and all of them say that, yes, indeed, the temperature has warmed, and the increase tracks fairly closely with the increase in carbon dioxide as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's, a, here's another objection, uh, one that I heard from another friend this morning. He says, uh, okay, granted, the CO2 levels have risen. He says, and again, I have no idea if this is true or false, he says from zero point, uh 0.035% 50 years ago to 0.04% now. So he's saying this is such a minuscule change. How can you attribute any significance to it? Ah, well, that's a great question. And I love that one because it's true. that Those numbers are correct. And this is one of the things that's hard for a lot of people to understand about carbon dioxide, that it's an extremely powerful greenhouse gas. It doesn't seem like a powerful thing because we can't see it, we can't smell it. There's lots of it in the atmosphere that doesn't affect us. So it seems hard to believe that that tiny, tiny increase could make such a big difference. But think about this. How much arsenic does it take to kill a person? Only a couple of parts per billion. How much testosterone does it take to make a man a man? It only takes five parts per billion testosterone to separate a man from a woman. So tiny amounts of powerful things can make a really big difference in the world. (laughs) <laughs> well, that's uh, thanks for injecting a little humor there, because otherwise it's a, it's a topic that I find very depressing in some ways. Uh, and I agree with you that just because you don't want something to be true, does it does it make it not true? May, does it make it uh, the way you want it to go? So, another objection, though, the same person suggested that um, he says eight of the of the last ten warming cycles, CO two levels. Uh, have actually followed. That is, the warming cycle took place and then the CO2 levels followed by something like 500 years. So he's suggesting that you you can't just say that there's a cause and effect there. CO2 goes up and that's the cause for warming. Yeah, that's another common claim. And I'll I'll answer in a minute because I don't want anyone um, in the audience to think I'm evading or avoiding any issues. But I just want to say one thing before I do. You know, you said this is from the same person. Mm -hmm. I think 
that's so interesting because I think it actually demonstrates what we're talking about here. People don't want this to be true. So they're looking for reasons for not to believe it. Mm-hmm. They're trying to say, oh, it's such a tiny amount. How could it possibly make a difference? You know, how do we know that's the cause? You know, how do we know that it's proceeding and not following? So they're really searching. It's like they're grappling for some reason to disbelieve the science mm-hmm. evidence. And I think you see this really clearly here. So let me just answer that. Um, the answer to that question is we do not know because the data are not sufficiently um, uh, discriminatory in terms of the timing. So when we look at the most of our data on the relationship of carbon dioxide to temperature comes from ice core data. And we have ice core data now from Greenland and Antarctica that goes back nearly one million years. And there are data that have been collected by American scientists, by European scientists, by Russians. So we have a lot of data. Those ice cores are very, very detailed, but they're not so detailed. There's not such fine resolution that we can tell the exact year in which these things are happening in most cases. But what we see is that temperature and carbon dioxide track very, very closely together. Now, we know that both options are possible. It's possible that the CO2 goes up and then temperature rises because of it, but it can also go the other way around. If the temperature increases, carbon dioxide is released from the ocean, just like CO2 gets released from a Coke, if you Mm -hmm. leave a glass of Coke lying around and it warms up. So both are possible, and what we know is that in the past, probably both have in fact happened. So it wouldn't be wrong to say that in the past there were probably times when the temperature went up first and then the carbon dioxide increased, but that's a red herring. It's not the point, because in this case, in the world we're living in now, in this time that we're living in now, not 100,000 years ago, not 500,000 years ago, not a million years ago, but now the carbon dioxide increased first. And we do have the resolution on that, and we even know who measured it. It was my colleague, Dave Keeling, who taught for many years at the University of California, whose son, Ralph, still teaches there, who I knew them both. I still know Ralph. Um, They have been measuring this since 1958, And we have seen how carbon dioxide has increased and the temperature increase has followed the carbon dioxide increase. So for the world we live in now, the world that we're trying to deal with, we know what's happening and we know that it's carbon dioxide that is driving the temperature increase. And of course, can I I jump in here? Yeah, sure. Go ahead, Brent. Um, You know, from, you know, as I work with all the, with geologists and such, one of the main uh, objections I get to this, this idea is that Throughout geologic history, we've seen warming and cooling periods uh, just over and over again. And I don't know, or do we actually know what caused them? And secondly, how do we know this time is different? Go ahead, Naomi. Well, that's a really good question. And, And the fact is, we don't know what all of the different warming trends from the past have been caused by, or the cooling trends. We have some ideas, we have some evidence. Most of the evidence points to the idea that there are many different things that can cause changes in the climate. So we certainly have evidence that there have been periods in the past where changes in solar radiation have driven climate change. We also have good evidence that changes in the configuration of the continents through continental drift can affect the climate. So there are lots of different things that can cause climate change. But that's true of lots of things in life. There are a lot of things that can make a person sick. There are a lot of things that can make a person happy or sad. If I have an argument with my husband, there are many different possible causes of that. So the issue in life is not that there are many possible causes of things. The issue is if I've had a fight with my husband and I'm trying to, like, sort it out, I have to figure out why is he mad at me so I can 
fix that and do something about it, right? <laughs> so, so in a way, that's the same thing here. Yes, absolutely, there's been lots of episodes of warming and cooling in the past. The question is, what is driving this warming period? And, and we, most scientists would say we have a pretty good handle on that. Now, you could ask the question, well, what difference does it make since we know there's been lots of warming and cooling in the past? And there the answer is very clear. The difference is the rate. Most of the evidence we have from the past, from the geological record, about climate change, typically those changes have happened over scales of thousands to millions of years. Now we're looking at climate change that is happening on a scale of years to decades. That is to say, within our own lifetimes. And that, of course, raises the other gigantic difference. We weren't alive during the previous periods of climate change, so we weren't alive to suffer. We weren't alive to feel the effects. We weren't alive to have to move our cities when the sea levels rose in the past. But now we are alive, and we live in a world with a tremendous amount of extremely expensive, extremely well-built infrastructure, much of which is sitting at sea level, which is a whole other issue that I guess we'll get into. But we have trillions of dollars just here in the United States of infrastructure within half a meter of sea level rise. And all of the scientific projections tell us that all of that infrastructure is now at risk. So since many of your listeners are, are business people who are interested in, in the cost of things, this is where this issue becomes so important for us living now, that we're looking at potential changes in the next 50 years that could cost us trillions of dollars just here in the United States alone, not even worrying about all the other billions of people around the globe who will be affected as well. Sure, and and even as uh, you know, as the sea levels are rising, and people uh, want to continue living next to the ocean, though, and they're looking, of course, to lay off those costs by uh, subsidizing insurance uh, costs, I suppose. So, um, trying to get someone else to pay for their um, uh, pay for their lifestyle, I suppose, which is nothing new. It seems to be sort of a human trait. But Brent, you know, speaking of human traits, I wonder, uh, geologists that I speak to, why do you think it is? Uh, you know, we're, we have the same data available to us. Now, of course, uh, there's, climate geolo- there's climate scientists, people that are uh, climatologists. There are people like Naomi who focus in this area. Y- your discipline is, is specific to exploring and developing projects, uh, mineral projects. So is it a matter just of people not focusing on this very important issue because they're, they don't have the time? Or, or why do you think that the uh, the geologists, that at least the ones that I talk to, are so divided on this issue. I, I say you can almost flip a coin when I talk to geologists, and uh, half of them are, you know, not believing that it's uh, human-caused, and half of them do, perhaps. Yeah, that's a good question. There's probably a number of actual reasons behind it. My own, my own case, I was pretty much indifferent to the idea, mm-hmm. but I can see on the ground, you know, ex- exploration ground has been opened up you know, lots of it, by the receding uh, ice sheets. Mm -hmm. There are new properties being explored and drilled and discovered today that 20 years ago were under ice. So, you know, you can see those things happening. And I went in and did a a whole lot of actual research into this. And I think there's something that we need to differentiate here is between peer-reviewed, you know, real science as opposed to an article put out in Forbes or on MSN, uh, MS. You know, NBC or something. Mm-hmm. That needs to be addressed as well. I think it also comes down to a large degree is, you know, as a geologist, we think a million years is nothing at all. Mm-hmm. So what we're seeing happening has happened in the past. It's happening again. And until you come to the realization this is happening really fast, and we know the reason behind it, 
we've got thousands of scientists independently confirming this from all different angles, then it starts hitting. And the second reason people don't, you know, in my field, in all fields, don't buy into this is it's it really gets down to, as you say, philosophical. Either you're, you know, you're, you're a liberal or you're a conservative. Mm-hmm. And it really breaks down that way without people doing the actual research mm-hmm. to come up to their you know own educated decision on it. Mm-hmm. It gets back to what Naomi was talking about a little while ago. Just because you don't want to believe something is true doesn't mean it's not true. And I, I, you know, I mean, I think it's something that we all have to examine our own hearts and minds with in almost anything we do. Ask ourselves, are we being honest? and Are we being objective about the issue at hand? And uh, so, yeah, it, it seems to me, Brent, though, that, you know, the, the your colleagues are looking at the same data and yet they're they're not understanding. Maybe uh, just to review the whole notion of the scientific method, Naomi. Maybe you could just talk to that a, a bit and uh, and you know suggest why it is that people are coming up with all kinds of ideas about this issue. This is a very important point because many of the people who are coming up with all kinds of ideas are not actually looking at scientific evidence. They're going to the internet and they're going to websites where people are deliberately promoting, for whatever reason, misinformation, cherry-picking data, uh, arguments against climate change. And when I give public lectures, I generally hear the same objections over and over again, and often the exact same words are being used. (laughs) So that's kind of a clue that they're getting them, you know, from some external source. If you actually look at scientific data, which is what I did back in 2004 and how I originally got into this whole issue... If you look at the peer-reviewed scientific papers, what you find is there's essentially no argument among scientific researchers, people who are actually doing the work, looking at the data, that climate change is happening, that it's real, and that it's being mostly driven by greenhouse gases, also to some extent by deforestation and agricultural practices. There's just no argument about that among the scientific research community. But that brings us to the question of what does it mean for something to be scientific research? And that's a complicated question But the short answer is that it's published in peer-reviewed journals, that scientists collect data or they run models or they do calculations, and then they present those that work to their colleagues, to other scientific experts for critical scrutiny, and they subject their claims to the critical scrutiny of other people. And that's what peer review is all about, that other experts look at it and they say, well, okay, do these claims stand up? to examination. So if you take that claim we discussed a few minutes ago that the warming has stopped, well, it turns out that claim does not stand up to scrutiny. It's based on cherry-picking data. Mm -hmm. And when you look at all of the data, you find that it's false. So that paper would be rejected, and it would not be published in a peer-reviewed journal, assuming that the process is operating correctly, which most of the time it does, not always, but most of the time. And so scientists place place very high stock in peer review because that's the mechanism that scientists use to weed out claims that are supported by evidence and claims that are not. So it's really a crucial process, and that's why people like myself, when we talk about this issue, we're always referring back to the peer-reviewed literature, because there are all kinds of claims that people make all the time Mm -hmm. about all kinds of things in life. I mean, people will claim that, you know, you can improve your sex life by eating rhinoceros horn, (laughs) but it doesn't make it true. So the question is, is there evidence to support it? Has someone done a clinical trial? Well, that's a tough one because, of course, rhinoceroses are endangered species, so we shouldn't be doing this. But um, it's also a tough one because uh, the quality of your sex life is highly subjective. But if it's something that's more easily measured, 
then we actually can subject these claims to peer review and we can find out whether or not the evidence supports them. And that's really the crux of what scientific research is really all about. Okay, so, for example, I recently came across an article in Forbes uh, titled, It's the Sun, Stupid, and they're basically, uh, you know, saying that that it's the sunspots or, or solar activity that has been responsible for global warming. Uh, could you uh, talk to that, uh, Naomi? Yeah, it's hard to talk to that because it gets to the point where I feel like I cannot actually understand what the editors at Forbes are thinking. Because that claim has been pr- printed so many times and more than once in Forbes, more than once in the Wall Street Journal, more than once in Fortune, and we know that it's false. And the data to show that it's false comes from NASA. And I don't think there's anybody at Forbes who really wants to claim that NASA is a communist front organization. <laughs> well, maybe there are some people who think that. But, you know, most people think NASA is a, you know, maybe they waste some taxpayers' money and maybe they're not as efficient as they should be. But, you know, NASA is not an environmental front organization. The data, the satellite data that, da- that NASA has been collecting since the 1970s proves beyond any possible shadow of a doubt that the sun is not causing climate change. And it's a very simple piece of data. And you can go to the NASA website. Um, I can give you the website, Dan. Maybe you can post it on your site so people can go to this. Okay. What we know is that sun sunspots are cyclic. That's why we call them sunspot cycles. And we know that the sun, the radiation from the sun goes up and down. And we do have some years that are hotter and some years that are cooler. And we know that there's a 22-year cycle of these things. So if that's what was driving climate change, then what we should have seen would be 22 years of warmth, then 22 years that are cooler, then 22 years that are warmer, cooler, mm-hmm. that, up and down. That's not what we're seeing. What we're seeing is a consistent trend, warmer, warmer, warmer. As I said before, 2000s hotter than 90s, 90s hotter than the 80s, 80s hotter than the 70s. There's just no way to explain that with sunspot cycles. And scientists have said this so many times that some of them have given up saying it because they they feel like, well, why should I keep explaining this when these people clearly are not interested in knowing the truth? Mm -hmm. And that's where it gets into this really tricky thing of why does Forbes continue to publish these claims even though we know they've been refuted by scientific data? Mm -hmm. Uh, One question I have to ask you about, Naomi, before we let you go, and that is uh, another allegation that I've heard, or at least I've heard this mentioned, that while the ice caps uh, in the North Pole are receding, that's not true in this, on the this, uh, South Pole. Yeah, well, that's a really interesting one, and it's a little similar to your fellow earlier with the 0.035% uh, percent of CO2. So that's actually true. There is evidence that the total amount of ice in Antarctica is increasing, and that simply has to do with the complexity of the climate system, which is to say that one of the things we know is the climate is extremely complex, And if the world as a whole gets warmer, that is to say the average temperature of the globe increases, that doesn't mean that it's going to get hotter everywhere. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that there will be less snow and ice everywhere. And there are certain conditions under which we actually could get more snow and ice in some parts of the globe in a warmer world. And that has to do, well, it's complicated, but it's the same reason why we have stronger storms associated with climate change. You have more energy in the climate system. So one of the predictions of climate models is that at least certain parts of Antarctica, particularly the eastern part, may actually get more snow and ice in a warmer world. So that's true, but it doesn't refute the overall claim or all of the other evidence associated with climate change. In fact, it's consistent with what the climate models tell us could very well happen. 
Well, it certainly is true that we've, uh, you know, this summer we've got a cool summer here in uh, on the in the Northeast. A very very pleasurable summer. We've seen a very cold and uh, snowy winter last year, and then in Europe it's it's something completely different. So it, it, that's obviously you have to look at the at the uh, globe uh, as a whole. But you know, Naomi, one perhaps as we close here, one last thought in your book, uh, the collapse of Western civilization. You talk about. Uh, the failure of uh, of markets, the failure of capitalism, I guess. And what I would like to uh, throw out to you and get your response, and Brent, you're f- free to weigh in on this as well, the, the notion that it isn't the system that is wrong. I mean, I have a hard time believing that the laws of supply and demand are, are not, there's not, that they can be refuted. Uh, but that it's, that it's people that are really the problem, that individuals, human beings are flawed, and that... Uh, uh, and that people are willing to hurt one another uh, for their own gain. Uh, if I'm if I'm polluting a river or something and taking profits from some manufactured product in the process, and passing that cost along to future generations, then shame on me. I'm. It's not capitalism. It's me as a flawed human being that is uh, not respecting my fellow man. So I would like to just uh, say that what I think is that it's not capitalism per se that's the problem but it's uh, it's flawed human beings what, what's your take on that well you know that's a really interesting thought and I, and I agree with that I mean in a perfect world if we were all considered and thoughtful and cared about each other and our children and our grandchildren we wouldn't just dump garbage in rivers and we wouldn't just burn fossil fuels indiscriminately so I think you're right but at the same time I think that the economists who par- point to market failure are right as well in the following sense We have a system that places value on goods and services. And the prices we pay for things are supposed to reflect the true value. And if the market system is working as it should, then that goes pretty well. The problem is that there are these costs, and it's the cost that economists call externalities. That is to say, you pollute the river, I buy the product you make, I'm not paying for that pollution. That cost is being passed downstream, literally downstream in the case of a river, or metaphorically downstream in the case of future generations. And our system doesn't really have a way to reflect that in the price of the goods and services. And so one of the questions that I hope you know, your listeners will think more about is, how can we remedy that? How can we have an adequate price signal so that we don't have to restructure the entire system, but mm-hmm. we can just remedy this limitation or this flaw in the system that we have? Because the whole point of the new book, and I hope your readers will read it because this is what it's really all about is, But if we don't find some remedy pretty soon, we're going to end up in a much worse situation, a situation where natural disasters and food riots and food shortages actually invite the very forms of authoritarianism that we all, you know, that we all dread. Mm -hmm. I mean, none of us want to see fascism or totalitarianism in the United States. But if we have food riots, if we have martial law because of flooding and hurricanes, I mean, we saw what happened after Hurricane Katrina, and that was just a small example of what Mm -hmm. happened. the whole point of this book is that it's an invitation to authoritarian government, and that's an invitation that I think we do not want to extend. No, oh, I certainly agree with you. Brent, anything to add? No, I think, you know, I came at this independently, mm-hmm. and the, it's, it's overwhelming the number of different scientific fields that have come to the same conclusion about global warming and what's causing it. I mean, from fellows studying cougars in California to algae in the Arctic to um, sea life in the uh, 
in, you know, in the ocean and that sort of thing, all these different fields come together and are turning up the same result or the same conclusion from all these different angles. And the idea is always posted, well, that's where the money is and so the research money is going into people who will support that sort of thing. That's complete BS. This is, it's, it's something that needs to be refuted right off the bat, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, I would just say uh, in closing to my listeners that uh, Brent Cook is a person that I have had a great deal of respect for. I know that he is, uh, I know him from uh, the mining industry, and he has, is very highly regarded as an objective thinker, as a person who tells the truth. And, uh, and you know that's true because he says a lot of things that people don't want to hear. Uh, uh, with regard to their project. So I, I think I know Brent pretty well, and, and it was Brent that actually introduced me to Naomi. And I want to thank you, Brent, for that. And I want to thank you, Naomi, for joining me once again to talk about this very, very important issue. Uh, the book is The Collapse of Western Civilization, A View from the Future. Uh, be sure to buy it, folks. It's a very inexpensive book. Pick it up at Barnes & Noble uh, or online anywhere. So thank you very much, both of you, uh, Brent and Naomi, for being with me. You're welcome, Jay. Yeah, thank you, Jay. It's a pleasure to have a chance to talk with you again. Great, and I hope to do it again sometime with both of you. Thank you so much. Well, that's just about all the time we have for this week, uh, but don't forget there is a second hour to this show. Uh, we, uh, If you go immediately to jtaylormedia.com, you will hear uh, some commentary uh, on the precious metals markets from David Jensen, and Daniel McAdams will also give us an update on the geopolitical issues in the Ukraine, the Middle East, and elsewhere uh, he'll give you a perspective that is completely different from what you're hearing on the mainstream media. I think a very truthful and very important perspective. So I hope that you'll join me immediately at jtaylormedia.com. Next week uh, on the first hour of the show, we are going to have David McIlvenny, uh will be a main guest, and I'm expecting to have uh, either a newsletter writer or yours truly will provide a stock pick or two that I think ha- offers extraordinary potential. So go immediately uh, to jtaylormedia.com. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. 